if you have your Bible, or you want to, if you have your Bible, open it to Genesis 16. You're also welcome to use the worship guide. The passage is printed there. We've been in this series going through the life of Abram, Abraham. His name has been Abram this whole time, and next week it changes to Abraham. But for now, we're still sticking with Abram. Um, We've been going through his life just episode by episode. And each week, we ask the big question, who is Abram's God in this passage? And the reason for that is because um, he's a Bible hero. And when we tell and read, talk about Bible stories, it's just because the way our culture works, it's so easy for us to latch on and go, oh, I'm supposed to be like that person. But in Abram's case, there's really only one way we're supposed to be like him, and that's in the way that he looked to God for salvation in all things. When we examine his life, we see a very messed up individual. Sometimes he does wonderful things, and sometimes he does horrible things. Our passage today is one of the times he does something horrible. Uh, But the beauty of God giving us his word in a book is that we can come to it uh, objectively. And we can read the story and turn it over and examine it. And God meets us in that in such a beautiful way. So this morning we're going to go through this story of Abram, Sarai, his wife, and Hagar, uh, who was an African slave in their family. And we're going to learn something about who God is. In the process, it's my hope and my prayer that we would be confronted by who God is. Abram was confronted by God in this passage through Hagar. And I would hope that as we read this, we look at Abram's story, we ask, who is Abram's God? And then we meet him as someone who confronts us as well. Because he confronts us, that means we can enter into his grace and be changed. So... Uh, I'll tell you what, let's pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Lord God, Abram's God, uh, thank you that we can come to you and hear from you in the words of a book that are inspired by your Holy Spirit. They're your words. You work. We can, we can trust them. Uh, in a world where we can't trust very many things. We can trust the Bible. And you also, through your Spirit, you illuminate these words in our hearts and our minds. You speak to us here. I pray that you would do that. I pray that during this time we would begin to see our sin as you see it. And that we would see your grace and your forgiveness as wide open to us in Christ. Lord, I pray that during this time you would comfort those who mourn, who may have been hurt like Hagar was hurt here. Lord, I just sum all of this up, and I pray that this would be a time where you do your work. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read this together. Now remember, God had just met Abram 
and he had established a covenant with Abram. Uh, a covenant is a super strong promise that's sealed in blood, and he promised him land and offspring and blessing, and all of Abram's hope, and even the hope of the world, is hanging on that promise, that covenant. This is what happens right afterwards. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she, Hagar, fled from her. Now the angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. And he will dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. In the footnote you see that means the well of the living one who sees me. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar spoke, and Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is not a light story, is it? This is a very heavy story. Um, this, is, this is, in many ways, uh, a very dark story. When I, I remember the first time that I ever learned this and heard this story, I was maybe in second or third grade in church during Sunday school time. I went to a church that 
for kids, it was big enough where each kid was just with their own age group in Sunday school. And so I was just with other second or third graders, and I remember hearing this story for the first time. And I was too young to pick up all the nuance here, but I was old enough to know that Abram and Sarai did something really bad. Now, what's interesting is I remember very clearly the way the story was taught to my second or third grade class. And as I've grown up, I've heard the story taught in that same way several times. And even studying for this sermon in various commentaries, I heard this story told like I heard it then. Let me tell you how I heard this story when I was a second or third grader and how I've heard it so many times since then. Maybe you've heard it like this. The story goes a little something like this. This is a story about Abram. And Abram, the man that had strong faith. And in this instant, his faith mm, wavered a little bit. It shouldn't have wavered, but it kind of teetered a little bit. But it's all going to be okay because God saved the day and his faith was restored at the end. In fact, let's give Abram some credit. He was under a lot of pressure. You know, Sarai, that Sarai, she just couldn't stop worrying. Of course, she struggled with infertility, but God had promised to give her a baby. And if she would just relax and trust God, God would open her womb. What a strange phrase I heard as a, and learned as a, from a second or third grade Sunday school teacher by the way, if she would just relax, trust God, God would open her womb and everything would be okay. But she worried and she blamed God. So she did something she probably shouldn't have done. She took Hagar, her servant, and brought Hagar to Abram and said, here, you be with Hagar and Hagar will bear a son and that'll be my child. And we gotta give her some credit. That was the custom of the day. We might think that that's a bad thing, but everybody was kind of doing it. And Hagar, she played along. In fact, that Hagar, kind of a temptress for Abram. Well, Abram's faith wavered, but in the end, Hagar realized what she had done. She had to take a break for a while, but she came back and she submitted to her master and her mistress and Sarah we'll find out later she finally chills out and whew, what a close call for Abram have you guys heard the story told that way that's the way I first learned it now of course I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect uh, but I learned this story as a story of primarily about Abram, how his faith wavered, and about these two women in his life who just didn't help him at all. Does that make you guys uncomfortable? Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable too. That's not what this story is about. When I was actually seven or eight years ago, um, I was attending a, another church here in town called Imago Day. I was in seminary, and one week they had a guest preacher, and it was a lady named Sarah the Barge. Sarah is uh, an author. She's written a couple of books. She's also a, a medical care provider. She works 
nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, something like that. Um, and she got up to speak. She had just written a book that was doing really well, and she got up to teach that Sunday. And she preached on this passage. Now, listening to her message completely changed this story for me. I had never heard, even though I grew up in church, some of the things that she drew straight out of the text. She, her teaching confronted me. I listened to Sarah the Barge teach this passage and I realized that Abram is not the main character in this story. God is. This is a story about God. And he's named in this passage. He's named El Roy, the God who sees. And he's given that name in this passage by Hagar. Hagar is the only person in the entire Old Testament, no, first person in the Bible, and the, entire, the only person in the entire Old Testament who ever gives God a name. In fact, her being among the ones who God has allowed to name him, she stands with our Lord, Jesus, who gave God the name Father for us to use. Hagar in this story, it's a story about God, but Hagar is the focus, not Abram. And listening to Sarah the Barge teach this, uh, she had, one of the things, her, her, she has a book, I, I wish I could remember the title, she had just released it, um, oh, it was called Invisible Girls. And she had made friends with a, a refugee family here in town, and she had heard the stories of various West African refugees and gotten involved uh, with, in friendship with them and began to hear about sexual abuse that was going on. And she, through her experience, was able to see sexual abuse going on in this text. I had never seen it before. Handmaiden surrogacy was presented to me as a second or third grader as something normal in Bible times. But I listened to Sarah talk about Hagar, and she showed me, here's a lady, a slave, who was under the command, under the household and under the leadership, maybe even we can say because she was a slave, under the ownership of Abram and Sarai. And the text says that Sarai took Hagar. It doesn't say that Sarai politely asked, Hagar, would you maybe consider this? Um, she took Hagar and brought, him, brought her to Abram. And Abram took Hagar and was intimate with her. Now, handmaiden surrogacy might have been normal in the ancient Near East. However, God's law never changes. And we know that... Uh, any sort of uh, sexual intimacy shared outside of the covenant bond of marriage is sinful and unpleasing to God. And it's a place where people get hurt. So there's offense one. We also know, especially from God's law laid out through the, through, through the Pentateuch, that any time somebody would use power to coerce sex from another person, that that's against God's law and not pleasing to him. There's offense too. 
In fact, we have a word for that. When somebody uses power in order to coerce or to get uh, a sexual response from somebody else, that word is sexual abuse. And it's unpleasing to God. And I had never seen that until I listened to Sarah teach this, drawing on her own experience. Further, the name that she gives God, Elroy, the God who sees, is perfectly fitting for that message that I heard. I had read, listened to, studied, heard sermons on this passage at that time in my life for almost 30 years, and I never really saw Hagar. But God sees Hagar. And God confronted me in that. This is not a story about Abram, his faith sort of teetering, sort of like when you almost knock over a glass and it sort of teeters, but doesn't fall over. This is not a story about that. This is a story about sin and its devastating effects. You know, Moses, who drafted this, who penned this, Moses who wrote this. There were some Hebrew editors that came after. We can see that. But the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write exactly what God wanted him to write. And the Holy Spirit worked through those Hebrew editors to deliver us a story that is trustworthy and accurate and true and useful. So we read this and we read what God wants us to see and to hear from him. Well, so the way this is written matters. Remember two weeks ago when we did Genesis 15? In fact, if you have your Bible, you can look up and see um, where Genesis 15 ends. Genesis 15, God had made a covenant with Abram, and he had promised him the land. And then it says, Genesis 15, verse uh Let's start with 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And remember how I showed you how that language there, that phrase, from the river of Egypt to the river, the great river Euphrates, paralleled the structure and the wording in Genesis chapter 2 when the boundaries of the Garden of Eden are described. Remember that? Well, the rest of this story in Genesis 16 follows after that same pattern. When the Holy Spirit worked through Moses to draft this, Moses dropped all these little clues in the text that would get our attention as readers to help us to see that what happens here is a grave rebellion against God, like Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. Let me show you. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lived in the land that God had given them, the Garden of Eden, awaiting his promise and blessing after a period of testing. Remember, God said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was going to be a period of testing. Well, they broke the rule, so they didn't pass the test. But they lived in the land God had given them, awaiting his promise, and they were being tested. And here, Abram and Sarai are living in this land from river to river, like Eden, they had been given a promise for a son, and they're in a period of testing infertility. 
Back in Genesis 3, Eve took a hold of the fruit because she wanted to be like God, the fruit that was forbidden. And here in this passage, we see in verse 3 that Sarai took Hagar. She thought God had prevented her from having a child, and she was going to take control of that situation. So like Eve took the fruit, Sarai took Hagar. Like Eve gave the fruit to her husband, Adam, and it says in Genesis 3 that Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Sarai gave Hagar to Abram, and it says in verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Like Adam and Eve suffered shame in the wake of their sin, they hid from God. Abram and Sarah each suffered blame from one another. And they experienced contempt in their family. Sarai plays the victim. She says, Hagar did this to me. That kind of reminds us, like Adam said, Lord, the woman that you gave me did this to me. And they experience contempt, and they hide. And like God comes after Adam and Eve and says, where are you? God comes after, oh, there's a shift. Not Abram and Sarai. He comes after Hagar. He says, Hagar, what are you doing here? But do you see the parallels? Folks, God has given us this story in this way so that we would see sin and call it what it is in this passage and lament it. There's another way that this story has been mistold uh, over the years, and I've heard it this way very many times, and even studying for this sermon, see this in commentaries, and uh, it's something that's very easy to do. It's telling the story simply as a historical, theological, uh, impersonal kind of case study. And it goes something like this. Here's a story with Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And Abram uh, was going to be the father of many nations. He's the father of God's people. And uh, in this version, often calls it what it is. He engaged in grave sin. He did something terrible. And as a result, this child, Ishmael, was born. Ishmael was not the child of promise. Uh, Ishmael was illegitimate. And uh, we see that beginning from this time on, we see that Ishmael and his descendants have been sort of a thorn in the side of uh, Isaac, the legitimate son that comes later, and his descendants. And we can see that sin is terrible, but we also see that sin has great consequences. So we can look throughout history and even look at the news today and see that for thousands and thousands of years, the descendants of Ishmael have been at odds with the descendants of Isaac. And see, sin is terrible. Sin is bad. Look at the effects it has on the world. And then it stops there. This just becomes a theological reflection on the nature of sin. Have you heard it like this before? I've heard it like this before. Well, Moses, when he drafted this, and the Holy Spirit worked through him to give us exactly what we need in this passage to hear from God. Moses wrote not a historical theological case study. Moses wrote a personal story about real people. 
And he wrote this story in a way that was uh, meant to evoke emotional, personal response from his readers. You know, they had, just like we have pronouns now, they had pronouns back then. But this story has an interesting shortage of pronouns in the way that it's written. Who talks like this? And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, and Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Moses includes the personal names more times than he needs to, and more times than other stories that he has written here. Moses also drafts this in a way where his original audience the children of Israel that had come out of Egypt and were there in the wilderness wondering while Moses was writing down what God had given them and giving them the law. He wrote this in a way where they would have heard a story they were familiar with. They would have thought about their own slavery, their own suffering back in Egypt, and they would have heard this story about this lady who was hurt. They would have known what that was like. They also would have heard another story in Abram's life where there's another marker on the board, another dot to connect between uh, the children of Israel and their complicated relationship with Egypt. No wonder the Egyptians cared little for them. This story has been told in their family as well. They would have also thought about this story and they would have thought during the time Moses wrote this and delivered this, Moses was also writing the law that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and parts of Numbers and in Deuteronomy where over and over and over again, God says to the people, take care of and look after the foreigners among you. Take care of and look after single women who might be vulnerable. Don't enslave other Hebrews. And if you have a slave, that slavery is not permanent. And coercion and adultery are wrong. Moses wrote this story where the people would have been cut to the heart when they heard it. And God means for us as well to hear this as a personal story. To not hear this as a case study about Abram, but a story about the people of God and their family sins, our family sins. When we read this, we're reading a story about our people. Who's the abusers in this story? It's our family. We're Abram's children. So we need to consider how God confronts us in this text. We have a long history of taking the Bible and depersonalizing it, but this is the time to see where the personal nature of this story hits our story and confronts it. So I want to do a little bit of that, because that's what God's doing in this text. Folks, we have in our uh, tradition, in our denomination, and even in our presbytery, a long history of uh, ignoring, silencing, and subjugating women to second-class citizenship in our churches and in God's kingdom. 
The kind of thing that Abram and Sarah started with, thinking of Hagar as less than. We're guilty of doing that as well. It's part of our family story of our Pacific Northwest Presbytery, of the Presbyterian Church in America, and the Reformed churches here in the United States. We have taken what God has charged God has charged husbands to bear the responsibility of servant leadership in their homes. And we have taken that, and we have taken what we understand the Bible to teach about ordination. And we have taken those truths and we have twisted them into a story that says that God calls men to be superior and women to be inferior. And we might not say it out loud. But it's a problem in our tradition. It's a problem in our churches. And I myself, as a pastor, have heard from women who are under my ministry, story after story after story of how they had been hurt by pastors and by church leadership, some who have been abused, and many who have been silenced when they raised their voice. Our presbytery has uh, quite a clear and marked recorded history of sexual abuse. So does our wider tradition. So does the Christian church in general. Uh, Abram and Sarai, they did this with, let's be honest, an African slave. I think the Holy Spirit wants us to note that. Because it's pointed out in the text. We, I learned from the work of Dr. Tony Evans in his book, Oneness Embraced, using uh, biblical scholarship and also historical scholarship to help me understand that in this time, the late Bronze Age, the people of Egypt, the Egyptians, were black folks. I just always imagined uh, uh, the, the Charlton Heston Exodus movie where the Egyptians were white folks. Or I thought that the Egyptians looked like the Egyptians today, who actually came much later. And it's significant. This is a black woman. And Abram and Sarai, we don't know if that played into the way that they treated her, but we do know that here we have the, a, a record of the people of God taking advantage of a woman of color. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. That's something that in our tradition, We've done a lot of. It's part of our family story. Folks, Abram, we have, we have no moral high ground to read this story and say, shame on you, Abram, because this is our story. But we like to package it in a nice theological, historical way and ignore the personal truth. We have decided not to see it. But I'll tell you what, God sees it. God Elroy, the God who sees. That's who he is. And I want to tell you, if you uh, have been hurt by the church, whether you're a woman or if you're a man, God sees you. And I can tell you that we want to be a church that sees and values every single person here. We never, ever want to use what God teaches husbands about leadership in their homes, what God teaches us about ordination, Ever do we ever want to use that to silence anybody?
or to devalue anyone. And we should feel that passionately because we have not done a good job. There's a third way that this story is misrepresented. Maybe you've heard it like this. It's a misrepresentation of the story that stops right here. Here's what Abram did. Here's what Sarai did. Here's how Abram suffered. This is our family story, and that's the end. It's told simply as a morality story. But folks, that's not what this story is. It's not a morality story. I had never heard the second half of this taught until I heard Sarah the Barge teach on it. Hagar runs away, goes into the desert, and here comes God. He comes and he finds her. The angel of the Lord comes and finds her in a wilderness next to a well and says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now that particular verse, just let's just put it in the right place, that particular verse has been used to coerce runaway slaves to return to their masters and mistresses, and that's not what that verse is about for the record. God tells Hagar, return to Abram and Sarai. And the reason is, is because God had a redemptive plan to work out through Hagar. Abram and Sarai would be confronted by her presence. Every single day when they walked out of their tent and they saw her and her son, they were called to repentance. God uses our ongoing relationships, even the ones that are awkward, in order to sanctify us to be more like Christ. Did you know that? He calls her back on mission. Further, God uses Hagar to uh, this servant who had suffered to go back to her abusers in order to break the cycle of slavery in this family. I don't know if you noticed, but it says that uh, her son, Ishmael, uh, his hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he will dwell over and above his kinsmen. And very often we read that and we think, oh, Ishmael, it's like the scarlet letter. That kid is going to be marked by sin, and he's not going to get along with anybody. But that's not quite what that means. What it means is that this child will be a slave of no man. Mom was a slave. Ishmael is free. Breaks the cycle. Further, it says in verse 15, this is the part where Moses names all the names. Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram bore the, called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Folks, in handmaiden surrogacy in the ancient Near East during this time, as well as in just about every other place in the world where it's practiced, the child of the handmaiden is not called the child of the handmaiden. It's called the child of the mistress. Legal terms in this uh, system, Ishmael should have been Sarai's child. But here it says repeatedly over and over, 
This is the son that Hagar bore to Abram. Further, when you go back to verse four, three, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a headman surrogate? No. As a slave? No. As a wife. Here's the idea. There's a whole second half to this story where the seeing God sends a servant who had suffered to return to her abusers, the people of God, in order to play a crucial role in redeeming them. Does that sound like anyone else in the Bible? The Holy Spirit worked through Moses to tell this story so that at the end we would see a picture of Jesus, the suffering servant who, re who was crucified and taken advantage of and silenced and abused by us. And he returned in resurrection in order to set us free and to break the cycle of slavery break the cycle of to break the cycle of slavery and to begin a cycle of sonship and daughtership where we belong in God's family and Hagar like Jesus gives God a name that helps us understand God's redemptive work in the world he sees every sin. He sees every hurt. And he doesn't, he acts. He saves. And in his redemptive plan, he becomes the abused in order to rescue the people who have been hurt and to rescue and reform the abusers. What other story is like this? His story is above everyone's story. His name is above everyone's name. And the freedom that he offers to offenders and to victims is unlike any sort of justice or retribution or grace by the world's standards. Only in the gospel do we see this kind of redemption. God sees our sin. He sees the victims of our sin. And he has been our greatest victim. But he has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he has come back to be a part of this family so that we would be slaves to no one or enslavers of no one. Blessed be his name. Thank God for his servant, Hagar, who helps us understand this. Let's pray. Lord God, um, you know the thing that you said, that you send out your word, and it, it's like a double-edged sword that cuts between bone and marrow. Thank you for that. God, thank you for not leaving us in our sin. 
Lord, thank you for Hagar and the gospel that her life proclaimed. Lord, thank you for Sarah the Barge speaking truth in this story that changed my life. Lord, I want to lift up our church. I want to bring Hope Presbyterian before you and ask you that we would be a family that is marked by freedom and gentleness and care for one another. Lord God, I pray that you would give us your grace. Help us to be like Hagar. Help us to play a role in breaking the cycle of marginalizing women and even people of color that's been a part of our family story. Lord God, we love you. Thank you that you never change. Thank you for seeing us. Lord, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.